0: Hello and welcome to Mostly Weather, I'm Geoff Norwood-Brown. In this episode, springtime, what is it, when is it, and how do we know it's here? To help explain, I'm joined by broadcaster, operational meteorologist and communications expert Helen Roberts. Hi Geoff. Broadcaster, meteorologist and Olympic forecaster Penny Tranter.
1: Hi there
0: Geoff. Also with us is Met Office press officer, nature expert and phenomenal phenologist Graham Match. Hello Graham. Hi Geoff. So the burning question for me, Graham, is what is phenology?
2: So what phenologists do is they look at the timing of natural events. Now, that might be when robins lay their first eggs. It could be when the trees in your garden come into leaf, or it could be the arrival of swallows from Africa. But looking at all of those things is phenology, and it's a hugely important topic that's been studied right back to 1736 was the first recorded nature's events so it's a a hugely important topic. 1736 in the UK is
0: it or is that? uh... That's right
2: so it was started the first phenologist was a chap called Robert Marsham and he was looking at different things around the family estate that he had in Norfolk And that gives us just a huge wealth of information about how things are changing. We have so many long-running weather observations in the UK, but we have wildlife and climate observations going back nearly as far. Okay, so spring then, this is what we're talking about today. Regular as
0: clockwork and totally reliable, Graham?
2: Spring is obviously hugely varied, but what we can say from the long-term position is that spring... Is changing. It's the one season that's warmed the most. So we've seen about a 1.1 degree rise in average spring temperatures since the 1960s. That has a huge impact on the world around us and we're seeing nature responding in all sorts of different ways. Flowers coming out earlier, birds arriving earlier, birds laying their eggs earlier. So that Change in climate is having a huge impact on the environment but of course spring isn't necessarily the same each season so climatologists like to look at the average but of course when you see the variations in spring even over the last decade they can have a huge impact on the wildlife around us. So for
0: instance last year 2020 just as we started lockdown it was quite an exceptional season.
2: It was really, truly exceptional. I think many people at the Met Office were surprised just how sunny spring was. We saw 626 hours of sunshine last spring. That is a record for spring. But to put it into context, if it had been summer, it would have been the fourth sunniest summer Uh, (laughs) in the UK. And obviously that gave wildlife a boost. Butterflies particularly did well, insects did well, nesting birds did well as a result. Along with the sunshine there was uh, a general absence of rain at least early on and that really boosted our wildlife. Is this a sign of things to come do you think with the changing global patterns? Certainly we're seeing long-term trends that are being reinforced. As I say, cycles in nature are becoming earlier. Studies going back to the 1940s, for example, have shown that robins have advanced their egg-laying dates by two weeks compared with the 1990s. But there are concerns as well, because obviously nature's cycles have historically worked in tandem with one another. And the concern is that you start to get these nature cycles out of sync so when blue tits have their chicks they coincide that with the peak emergence of caterpillars and if those two cycles get out of sync then you start to have a problem
0: okay well we'll get
2: into that a little bit
0: more uh, later on in the episode but I thought what we'd start with today is just a couple of bits of weather law perhaps my favorite saying of all is march is in like a lion and out like a lamb now do we agree with that phrase I must admit I've been watching this for quite some time um and I think it, it largely stands it comes in lots of winds and storms but goes out fairly gentle and we're into proper spring by the time we hit April do we agree
3: I think it quite often does seem to hold up, doesn't it? Although I have seen the uh, piece of weather law reversed. Um, So I think people also say, if it comes in like a lamb, then it's likely to go out like a light. I doubt there's much evidence for that one. But yeah, it can be the other way
1: around. I don't think it's one that you can hang your socks up by really, you know, it's not going to be completely true every year. I think there are going to be variations on a theme with it.
0: Maybe it's a bit of confirmation bias on my part. So basically, Penny, what you're saying is, uh, no, cast a clout till May is out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do we stand by that one? And what do we mean by May? Shall we settle this once and for all?
1: Well, I've always assumed that we mean the month of May rather than hawthorn blossom. Yeah, Very and friendly, I've, I've assumed the opposite, I think. I think I've assumed the, the flower. I wonder whether it's more around precaution than prediction. Yes, you know, so that you make sure that you don't take your warm clothes off until the end of May or alternatively until the May or Hawthorne Blossom is out.
0: Yeah, I think um living in the UK all my life, it's always useful to have the warm clothes handy <laughs> at any
2: time of the year, really,
0: you know. So, Graeme, is there any thoughts from you at all on that?
2: Absolutely. I think it relates to hawthorn, the flower, Mayflower. It's such an important emerging sign in spring. It comes out in April and can be in bloom during May. But I think if you leave changing clothes, my mother tells a story actually of how she was made by her mother to wear winter underwear until the first of June. Um, And she's always, always resented that saying because, um, Clearly, she would regard it as being um, related to the plant rather than the month. It seems a right. bit excessive to carry on winter clothing until first day of summer.
0: <laughs> okay, so Hawthorne that's coming out in spring, we think. So uh, let's have a, a think about what other signs, especially in the sky, give you an indication um, that spring is on its way. Um, they quite often say the strengthening sun. The sun gets stronger, and we have longer days. So. By strengthening sun, the sun is not actually getting any hotter or closer or anything like that. Did anybody want to explain what we mean by strengthening sun?
3: We could start really with a with another piece of weather law, which is March winds and April showers bring forth May flowers. And we often talk, don't we, about April showers in the UK and This is certainly one that's got a bit of science behind it because showers are very common during spring and particularly during April. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is, like you say, it's about the strength of the sun and it's all to do with the the seasons which come about because of the tilt of the Earth's axis. And so in the Northern Hemisphere, we're getting more and more of that daylight and it's passing through a, a shallower angle through the atmosphere. So it's starting to really warm the ground in particular. So during the particularly early part of spring, the ground is still very cold, as are the seas around the UK. In fact, the seas are about as cold as they get during that time of year. But the sun is, and the strength of the sun is really starting to warm up the ground. And that's what sparks off some of these we call convective clouds. And so, just again, going back to basics, might be worth revisiting the difference between rain and showers. And it's all to do with the type of cloud that they come from. So, showers are normally sort of short, sharp bursts of rain, sometimes really quite heavy. And that, again, depends on the cloud and how big that convective or cumulus cloud grows. And if it's big enough, then it will turn into a a thunderstorm, and that's a cumulonimbus cloud. But it's all to do with the heat differentials throughout the depth of the atmosphere and particularly if you have warming near the ground at the surface and cooler air above you get very buoyant air and that's what creates these shower clouds.
0: So, hail I always associate with just after all the blossoms come out on, especially fruit trees. No as sooner does as that come out than it gets stripped by hail. So, just going back to the earth axis tilt, I want to try a practical experiment here, if you don't mind, you can indulge me. So, what I want you to do is give me a thumbs up with your thumb, if you can tilt that about 23.4 degrees, a little bit further. There we go, like that. Now, imagine that your right hand is the earth. The thumb is the axis and your fingers are indicating the rotation direction of the earth. Now use your other hand, your left hand as the sun and bring your right hand to the left hand side of your left hand. Okay, still following me on this one? You can see now that that represents winter and your thumb is tilting away from the sun. So it's getting less sun strength, if you like. The sun is lower in the sky. Now bring it round to the right hand side of your left hand which is the sun and you'll see that your thumb is now tilting towards the sun that represents summer the bit in between the transition in between those two positions is spring and we call it spring because explaining it with two hands and a thumb is is a little bit complicated every year so we have that shortcut so we've got cumulus cloud developments we've got showers is it all starting simultaneously in the uk or does it move up the country
1: I think it moves up the country and across the UK it moves from the southwest to the northeast and the reason for that is we have uh, predominantly across the UK we have southwesterly winds so that makes huge amounts of sense that it starts in the southwest and then pushes up towards the northeast because of that wind. I'm hoping that you can hear me because we do happen to have a very early spring shower just following on my uh, window, just up to my left there. But um, yeah, it's quite interesting, isn't it? When you look at the the research about how fast does spring actually move, and um, I've been doing a little bit of research on this, and uh, there's quite a lot of different speeds depending on what aspect of the flora or fauna that you're looking at. So, for example, did you know that frog spawn moves at about one mile an hour?
0: <laughs> Not literally.
1: <laughs> Not literally, but that is the speed of travel from the <laughs> southwest up towards the northeast. But ladybirds are a little bit quicker. It's six and a half miles an hour.
0: Right. So, so this, is, this is the appearance of these things it, as you move up the country.
1: Yes, absolutely. Some events appear to be more reliable than others in determining the speed of the progress of spring. But comparison with previous years, like Graham was suggesting, that spring may be moving faster now than it did in the past.
0: You used to say that you used to take about, was it three weeks to move from Cornwall to Scotland? Was that about
2: right?
1: Yeah, effectively, that's about right.
0: Yeah. So, Graham, have you seen any signs of that speeding up at all?
2: I think it's normally considered to be about walking pace, isn't it? But I'm not sure that the phenologists are picking up the speed, but I think what we are doing is picking up the fact that those events are happening much earlier. So some events that you would have regarded as happening in April are now perhaps happening up to a month earlier. And of course, there's always the odd curveball that comes into this when you get a freak snow event or hard frosts for a period of time that will sometimes just kill off butterflies and insects if they've come out too early. So it is quite hazardous.
3: Yeah and of course we've always had these extreme weather events and nature recovers but it's different now with climate change, isn't it? Because it's potentially much more extreme, but it's moving that much more quickly.
2: I think we're expecting nature to cope with a lot at the moment. So there's all sorts of crises affecting the natural world. And having to adjust a time when species are already stressed is asking a lot.
1: I just wanted to pick up following on from Helen's question Graham are we seeing some sort of animals and flowers becoming more adaptable than others in order to survive as we you know start to see more evidence of climate change across the UK? Yes
2: that's definitely the case so some species do seem to be particularly well enabled to adapt quite readily but others are even going the other way. So there's evidence that some species are actually emerging later because of climate change rather than earlier. So I'm not entirely sure whether the scientists know what the driver is for that.
0: Okay, so we've looked at uh, signs of spring uh, in the air, but what about on the ground and other surfaces like the sea around the country? Penny, what sort of temperature are we looking at for the sea at the moment?
1: Sea temperatures in the southern North Sea are only around about five to seven degrees. So they are below average. Um so that is really quite unusual. But if you go out towards the southwest, say off the Isles of Scilly, then you're looking at temperatures closer to ten or eleven degrees, which is around about average for this time of year. It's just a little bit below. But it really is bitterly cold out there. I certainly you're, wouldn't want to. You're a to sailor,
3: Penny, aren't you? So <laughs> yeah. What's it like going out at this time of year when the sea surface temperatures are so low?
1: Well, I have to be honest and say that I'm a fair weather (laughs) sailor. But but if you were going out on water uh, of that temperature, then you would have to be wearing some seriously warm sailing gear that would have to be thermal. It would have to be waterproof. And also you'd have to seriously consider doing survival training because if you did fall in water, of that temperature then you're going to cool down really really quickly and you're going to suffer from what they call cold water shock so yeah i have been out on the sea once and only once when the temperature was of that ilk but never again because it was far too cold because you just get the wind blowing off the cold sea and just every part of you just numbs and it's just not a pleasant feeling at all
0: Does this sea surface temperature have an influence on the land then? I'm thinking frosts and snow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously you've got air blowing over the colder sea, so that's going to lower the temperature of the air. And then when it blows over the land, obviously we're going to see lower temperatures both by day and night, Um, especially if the skies are clear at night we're going to see, you know, much lower temperatures than you would normally expect. And if you have an area of low pressure as well associated with that um, cold air, like we had with Storm Darcy, then you can get some very heavy falls of snow. And if you have clear, cold nights with hardly a breath of wind, then temperatures can drop minus 15, minus 20. I mean, I think we saw minus 23 Celsius, didn't we, in Braemar during the early part of February. So it just shows you... Um, the combination of of cold sea and cold air, what it can do to the temperatures over the land.
0: And of course, there's a lack of heating during the day because, yeah, the sun is not quite high enough at the moment to to provide much uh, in the way of temperature. So we've touched on impacts on nature as well, um, Graham. Can we get specific spring flowers to expect first? Uh, is, Is there a traditional spring flower that emerges?
2: Perhaps the two most classic ones that everybody would know would be daffodils Um, and obviously primrose, the prima rose, the first rose of the season is obviously a classic bloom. Another one of my favourites is the buttercup like lesser celandine, which will be hopefully gracing hedgerows fairly soon. And although these plants are very attractive to us and give us a little bit of optimism that summer is on the way, of course, for insects, they're a, a lifeline. These bright yellow flowers act like beacons because these are sources of fuel for Bees and bee flies, hoverflies, butterflies just coming out of winter dormancy. Is it
0: an advantage to the flowers that would be the first? I'm thinking because you always get snowdrops coming out very, very early. I always associate snowdrops with the uh, lying snow. But is that an advantage to the
2: plant? Certainly many of our woodland plants face quite a difficult challenge because they have to be ready to go early, right at the beginning of the season. They want to time their emergence so that hopefully most of the frosts are behind them, but they have to come out ahead of the leaf canopy coming out later right. in the late spring and summer because otherwise they'll be shaded out. So they have to hit that sweet spot and get their whole annual cycle pretty much over and done between the end of frosts and the end of winter. How do they work out the timing, is it? Uh, day length is it temperature? There are many triggers Uh, day length certainly is a factor but one of the principal factors is what the temperature has been in the preceding two months will be a good trigger so if you have a a warmer run-up then plants are more likely to emerge sooner they'll take a gamble if you like that conditions have been good up to now and that will set them off on that path so you've mentioned the primrose there, a few primrose, I do like that, I'm going to remember that.
0: My wife's favourite uh, springtime flower is uh, snowdrops, and one in particular called misbehaviour because uh, it actually points upwards as opposed to all the other snowdrops that point downwards. Has anybody else got a flower that typifies spring for you?
3: I think for me it's the traditional daffodil, that big, bright, bold, yellow flower just
1: really does symbolise spring for me. In our front garden we've got miniature iris. Which are out and they are a beautiful sort of indigo blue colour. They've just come up in the last day or so and that really does say to me that we've got the start of spring. But I I just wanted to ask Graham whether he's seen anything unusual in terms of the flowers and the animals.
2: Not so far, Penny, but I'm expecting to see some sightings fairly soon. So with the onset of this relatively mild period that we're in at the moment I would expect the ponds to start coming into activity we normally see our first newts in the garden around about now so I'm hoping for that I have seen bees presumably queen bumblebees encouraged by the warm weather and I would hope to see some butterflies possibly a brimstone the the sulfurous yellow one that comes out in spring fairly soon i haven't seen one yet but if the warm weather continues then i'm sure they'll be on the way
0: so what about migratory birds and that they all return now do they to uh, to the uk from um, summering elsewhere uh, wintering elsewhere
2: i should say spring is a bit like an airport in the uk <laughs> we've got birds that are leaving our estuaries and wetlands. And to replace them, we'll get birds like warblers and a whole host, nightingales, turtle doves and all those birds that we really look forward to coming in spring and summer. So it's millions and millions of birds. I mean, we do pick it up on the weather radar, these mass movements of millions of birds. So these birds, why do they migrate then? It's all about a trade-off, Jeff. So... Birds like swallows, they're insectivorous, there wouldn't be enough flying insects to sustain them obviously over winter so they have a fairly easy choice. They have to go somewhere warmer where the insects are still available to them and they make the most of day length and warmth in both the northern and the southern hemisphere so they'll be heading back early March uh, to mid-March, the first ones will arrive, and then the bulk will arrive in April. Other birds, like robins, don't really migrate. Their strategy is to sit tight and hope that winter is benign and will provide them with enough food. But then, if they've gone through a winter that's been relatively mild and then head into spring, they are the ones to get the advantage because they're sitting on prime real estate. So all their nesting territories will become available immediately. With climate change, the evidence is that the birds that make these big intercontinental migrations are the ones that are struggling more. And research from RSPB and other groups has shown that these are the ones that are struggling. And they're struggling because the resident birds are are winning out? Partly the sheer struggle of migrating across continents takes a huge amount of energy and they have to hope that there is sufficient food for them here when they arrive back on their nesting territories. And this is something where we were saying if you get a cold spring, these birds are right on the edge of their energy budget and it's like going somewhere and all the shops are shut there's just nowhere to get any food and they will struggle to survive so what of the
0: insects then i mean they 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 seem to be just nature's buffet which uh, insects are we looking forward
2: to uh to signal spring well the brimstone butterfly is a is a favorite it's very easy to see bright butter yellow Um, there's no really other yellow butterfly in Britain so that's always an easy one and it's always around in spring but one of my favourites and one that we get at the Met Office actually is um, a little insect called a bee fly. It looks very much like a bee but it is a fly perhaps not very imaginatively named, but they're ones that will um, they have a huge long snout and they're probing flowers for early nectar sources. I know that uh, flying ants uh, are being picked up on
0: the rainfall radar, I've seen that over the last few years, uh, Will we looking into why they were suddenly moving around, is that going to be indicative of anything?
2: It's a combination, as I understand it, of humidity and temperature. And the reason that they decide to, to fly on the one day is not to give us a justification for flying ant day. It's to create so much confusion for predators that however many predators there are around, they can't consume all the flying ants, gulls and other birds will have a good go but um, there's always some that get through. So if they were to emerge over a period of time, rather than on mass, fewer of them would make it. So it's just a wonderful example of a survival strategy that they're confusing predators by just overwhelming them.
1: Safety in numbers. Safety in numbers (laughs) works, indeed. Uh, Graham I'm, I'm really interested in understanding more about phenology so I mean you sound like you've been doing it for a long time if you don't mind me saying so so you I mean you're obviously an expert in it just wondered I mean if I was to try to learn more about it I mean what would you advise to somebody new to the subject?
2: Well one of the best portals I think to get people into it is to look at what the Woodland Trust are doing with their Nature's Calendar scheme. They run a scheme which asks their recorders to look at particular events so you're you're just looking for certain aspects. It may be the arrival of swallows, it may be um, the appearance of some leaves or hazel catkins, all of those things. There's good guidance there to tell people and inform what they should be looking for and the certain timings that they should be looking for these things and the information that they get helps the woodland trust to work and understand what's happening with our natural cycles but increasingly we have been working with the woodland trust on their nature's calendar scheme trying to understand how natural events can tell us more about indicators perhaps for changing trends in weather or indeed climate change?
3: I heard about a a fascinating example actually of a really long phenology record which is coincidental in a way because it's using the trees that line the cenotaph and obviously it's usual to take a, a photograph or a video in the same place on the same date every year, i.e. the 11th of September, oh, of November, fantastic. beg your pardon. Um, and I know we're talking about spring today, but it just uh, came to mind as a really interesting, very long sequence of photographs on the same date every year, and you can compare. I think it's, you might know, Graham, is it London Plains, the trees that are yes, in that the that facility? Yes, yes. Yeah, you can see year to year, decade to decade, how different that same scene looks on the same day.
2: That's a fascinating example. I've not heard of that, but it is something that is extending into different areas. Part of the scheme is looking at dates when people cut their grass and all sorts of things because as meteorologists we know the value of weather observations but of course these natural events or our response to the natural world are observations that we can gather to help us understand more about the weather and climate so although we might think this is a modern thing the royal meteorological societies our partner were looking to do this back in 1875 so It's certainly not a new thing, but is something that's growing. Well, that's
0: absolutely fascinating. I really hope we don't leave it until uh, November to speak to you again, Graham. So plenty there to look out for throughout the whole of nature in the sky and on the ground and in the seas that surround us. That's it for this episode of Mostly Weather. My thanks to panellists Helen Roberts, Penny Tranter and Graham Madge. Also to producer Claire Nazir and editor Adrian Holloway. I'm Geoff Norbert Brown. Do join us next time as we delve into the weird and wonderful world of weather.